Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text today, I ask that you would speak your strength through my weakness of my voice. And also, Lord, open our hearts to know what you want us to do. And more than anything, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, changed uh, as we listen to your word sink into our souls. We give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we gather together again uh, by being isolated from one another. Following the governmental order of November 19th, which suspended all in-person religious gatherings but allows it in virtual, and here we are. This all began when uh, an acute contagious respiratory disease raised its head in Wuhan, China in December of 2019. And over the past 12 months, COVID-19 has made its way around the entire planet. And as of yesterday, the virus has infected 65 million people and killed about 2 million. Now, those are pretty nasty numbers. No one can just blow off that mass of pain, suffering, and death. Yet there's a great deal of controversy and conflict about how we should be looking at these numbers. The argument is these numbers are nothing compared to the numbers who die from flu or look at a, compared to the numbers of pandemics and pandemics in the past. Research tells us that globally for the 2019-2020 influenza season, there was about 39 to 56 million people who got the flu and an estimated 24,000, 62,000 deaths. History tells us that in the 14th century, the Black Death was estimated to have killed as many as 200 million people, approximately 20% of the world. In recent history, uh, the Spanish flu of 1918-20 was estimated to have killed between 20 to 50 million. Now those numbers do reveal that they are much bigger exponentially when it comes to suffering. But that doesn't move, remove the reality of those who are suffering and dying in the present battle with COVID-19. The truth is there's no comparison scale or measurement of bad times between good times and which one's worse than the other. Because, brothers and sisters, we are fallen, broken creatures who live in a fallen, broken world. The original sin that was cast in the garden cast a shadow of pain, suffering, and death across the world and into our hearts. And that will be with us until Jesus comes back to take us home. That's our rock-solid hope in times of suffering and death. This is God's purpose in times of suffering and death. And the apostles, Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, when he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For is this is the hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God is telling us here that all of the pain and suffering and death in our world is for the purpose of God. Our most sovereign God subjects his creation to futility of bondage and corruption so that he might then be glorified 
when true followers of Jesus are revealed, when they are saved and set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, which is the redemptions of our bodies and adoption eternally into a family with God. We are living in times of pain, suffering, and death. God's creation is groaning in these days. We are in bondage to corruption, spiritually, physically, culturally, emotionally. Such is the way, though, that God works with his people. When God redeems us in Christ, he is just beginning to fashion us for his purposes. Just as a newborn baby cannot fathom what their life is all about, neither can we fathom that when we are newborn in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, our lives are not to be decided with I, by our isolated wills. Everyone who is made alive in Christ is made alive for the purpose of God. This is what God is doing today. God is making us alive in Christ today. The purpose of that pandemic that we are in is to be made alive in Christ. And so, so what does that mean for us? What, what does that, that look like? What does walking in God's workmanship look like? In these days of masks and social distancing and washing hands and governmental orders and mandated isolation, we need to learn from those who have walked that path before. How we walk for God's purpose will largely determine how the pandemic will crush us or conform us to Christ. In seeking the latter, we well will learn from Moses, a guy who put up with this for 40 years. The, headline, or the heading of Psalm 90 says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. The heading here says, this was written by Moses. This would make it the oldest psalm in the Bible. Moses wrote this song, this prayer, during a very bleak time for the Hebrew people. Uh, the Bible tells us Moses was commissioned by God to lead a Hebrew people out of bondage from slavery that they've been experiencing under the hand of the Egyptians. And Moses did by a miraculous escaped through the Red Sea, and after that, they headed out for the Promised Land. They stopped at a beautiful oasis at Kadesh Barnea, and Moses sent 12 spies out to check the land. Ten spies returned, shaking with fear, and reported that the people were too big and too strong for the Israelites to beat. But two others, Joshua and Caleb, encouraged the people of God to attack. In believing they could overcome whatever obstacle stood before them because God had promised them the land. God had promised he would be with them. God had promised that he could be trusted to help them to do what he wanted them to do. But the people of Israel did not trust God. They did not attack nor take the land. And so as a result of their lack of trust in God, he allowed them to wander the desert. For 40 years. And over those years, over 1 million people died. If you do the math, that's 70 funerals a day. Now that's nothing compared to the 1,000 deaths a day in the U.S. or the 100 in Canada. Again, we stray into nebulous territory when we compare numbers. For God's people, the nation of Israel, this was a disaster on a national scale. Hundreds of thousands of deaths within four decades, all people over the age of 20. Only Joshua and Caleb of that generation survived, all because they would not trust God and obey God. And so the realization of the brevity of life in those times surely caused the people to to wonder what's going on, what's, what's life all about. 
the deep pain of suffering and death is usually the impetus that causes us to look for significance in what we do and who we are. Surrounded by death and despair, Moses sat down and wrote this song, not this prayer to God, which speaks of seeking God's purpose in a fallen, broken world that is a world painful and short. Psalm 90 is a prayer into how we can surrender our lives to the purposes of God so we can live our lives that reflect our future glory. And Moses basically tells us how we can lead live our lives every day for eternity. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote this prayer. Most believe he said it when he was about 70 or 80 years old, which he kind of wrote down here. The years of our life are 70 or even reason the strength 80. And if that's correct, Psalm 90 was written at a time when Moses was contemplating his own net, his own death. In his own words, God has granted God's people a lifespan, about 70 years. But that's just a general principle. That's not a law or science. But this verse invites us to consider what's going on in Moses' mind in the back street of the desert. The Bible clearly tells us that Moses' life had three sections first 40 years, he grew up as a mighty man in Egypt. For the next 40 years, he traded out that wisdom of Egypt for the greater wisdom of God, and Moses became a man that God could use. Finally, his last 40 years, God used Moses in incredible ways to save his people after 40 years of isolation in the desert. And if anyone can speak wisdom into what's going on today, It's him. Moses began his prayer in the first six verses as praising God and worshiping God. The next section, verses 7 through 11, he confesses his desperate need for God. And then in verses 12 through 17, Moses petitions God to help him to do what God called him to do. Psalm 90 gives us a prayer that gives us God's perspective and God's wisdom as to how we can fulfill the purpose of God to live every day for eternity, even in times of pain, suffering, and isolation, no matter what circumstances we are facing. Moses began his prayer by praising God for his sovereign character and his actions that brought the world into existence. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here, Moses praises God for being our everlasting creator. He begins with declaring the truth that is comfort- should be comforting for us people who are of exile, because refuge is not a place we can run to. Our refuge is God. We, he is our dwelling place. While Moses would receive this vision uh, on Sinai of, of God's heavenly dwelling place, he would also, Moses, translate, translate that into the tabernacle. This verse directs us to know that our refuge is God himself. The other means are just temporary until God came to dwell with us in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen this glory, glory as only the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 2 recalls the formation of the earth. While God is eternal, his world is not. It came into being when he spoke the world into his existence. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses then speaks of the fall of mankind. In Genesis 3, God issues his judgment on Adam's sin when he said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. 
For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses reflects that when he says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Then Moses goes on to say, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or watch in the night. You sweep them away as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in an evening it fades and withers. Here Moses reflects on the age of the patriarchs, uh, where most of those folks were almost a thousand years old. Moses recalls then the flood that came after that, God's judgment that swept away sinful humanity, and then speaks of the new creation that came out the other side of the flood. In this section of his prayer, Moses is telling us that, that uh, we look for refuge. We better remember that God has that power to, have, to rise us above uh, what we're talking about here at the end, the gospel. He is the one who created, he sustains it, and he keeps us there. But we also need to remember in all these things, there's a, there's a struggle, God's judgment on humanity. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In this section of his prayer, Moses confesses he and you and we and everyone are desperate, desperate for God, because we are naturally born sinners. In Psalm 51.5, King David declares, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Moses reflects here on his current condition under the wrath of God. This condition he shares with all of us. Personally, as we're reading here, Moses may have been thinking in these verses his own because of his transgression in Egypt when he killed an Egyptian. Is this the secret sin, sin that is being seen in the light? It seems so. And he seems to be very honest with us. In context, these five verses begin and end with the wrath of God. And it's also mentioned right in the middle in verse 9. And even for these verses, the mention of the flood is an image based on the historical example of God's judgment on sin. All in all, Moses' reflection on wrath is long and detailed. He looks deeply into this reality, and by it, he gains a heart of wisdom. In this section, Moses affirms that God is the righteous judge, and his righteous, righteous judgment means that we will die. Death is not a benign certainty or a natural part of the world. Death is the judgment of God. Our sins, even when hidden, demand God's righteousness. And since Adam, Adam eat the uh, forbidden fruit, death has been the righteous judgment in all of creation, in all of humanity, stand before the wrath of God. This does not mean that God does not extend incredible patience and mercy to mankind. Even vessels of wrath, whose sons are stored up for God's judgment, read often receive much goodness from God. But the truth is we enter the world as, God en as God's enemies. And unless he intervenes and he grants us life from above, we will continue to provoke his, his anger. Mankind does not go to the grave in strength. God requires from us the breath that he granted to us. Our lives are fragile and brief. Who, consider, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This question tells us that sober reflection 
about death produces God's wisdom. When our lives brush up against death, we often find a new light to consider for our lives. God's, God's wrath, while frightful, it should produce a holy fear in us. And holy fear, we read, is the beginning of wisdom. By contrast, our greatest stupidity comes from thinking that we are invincible. Foolishness grows best in our minds when we trust in ourselves. Yet those who know and meditate on their own mortality find the wisdom of God. God's wisdom grows best in our hearts when we know and embrace our weakness. It took 40 years of chasing sheep in the wilderness before Moses came to know his weakness. Crushed by decades of obscurity, Moses the man, the mighty word, mighty indeed, ultimately became the most humble man on earth. God's wrath, our weakness, pain, suffering, and death are purposes of God. In Isaiah 45, God declares, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity. For I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth, let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness might bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. The Lord has created it. Joseph Bailey and his wife lost three of their children, one at 18 days after surgery, another after five years in leukemia, and a third at 18 years from hemophilia. In each case, they prayed for God's intervention. And in each case, each wave of death followed by a giant wave of grief that pounded the shore of their lives. Yet Bailey and his wife remained steadfast in believing and entrusting in God's goodness. Joseph knew that unlike today, the attitude of the New Testament Christians toward impending death was acceptance, not praying for deliverance. He wrote, Yes, we are to pray for healing, but if such praying obscures the reality of heaven, and its joyful prospect for the person who is ill, making it appear that only prolongation of life on earth may satisfaction be found, it is less than Christians. Our faith, excuse me, our faith is to be God, not healing. Whether we live or die does not affect our bedrock faith in Christ. Remember that death, not healing, is what delivers us from pain and suffering. Healing is only temporary. Heaven is forever. Pain, suffering, and death in the world are all for God's purposes. It is the means that we can learn to live every day for eternity. As we go down finally, after meditating on God as creator and judge, Moses' prayer comes to a time of petition in verses 12 and set through 17. Note here that Moses does not begin his prayer with requests and petitions. Rather, Moses first ponders who God truly is. Only after rooting his thoughts in God as creator and judge is he ready to seek God's wisdom and mercy. And this is what Moses done at the beginning, in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of, his, of wisdom. As natural-born wanderers, we need God to teach us how do you make a good use on our time here on earth. To, num to number our names is not about time management. It's about life management. A heart of wisdom is to live for God rather than for ourselves. <clears throat> to number our days means seeing and using each day as a precious gift. If we only had $100 to live this next month, we'd be careful about how we would spend it. The same is truth for our days on earth. How many days do you have? 
I went on the I went on the uh, internet and checked two different websites that estimate the date of your death. And I got two different answers. March 18th, 2059, and August 1st, 2040. God only knows. We are to live for today. Amen? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. The steadfast love here is the same Hebrew word kesed, which is God's faithfulness according to his covenantal promise. This is the unconditional love that God does not change in spite of what we think, say, or do. This is a steadfast love of God that joyfully satisfies and then leads to the ultimate conviction of the goodness of God in spite of what's going on in our lives, knowing that God is continually correcting and restoring what was lost. Glad as many days as you have afflicted us. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of our Lord God be with us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses prays here that for the things that we do, we ask in that God would come alongside of us and make sure the things that we do and how we live is all for him. He prays that God would bless the work of his people, always acknowledging that everything that comes to us that is good comes from God. The prayer Moses is writing down here is a prayer to ask him for our works with God, our efforts for God would be beautiful and attractive and meaningful and enduring and eternally, eternally significant. Pain and suffering are for the purposes of God. They are the means by which we can learn how to live every day for eternity. When we surrender our lives to God, we will then receive the life of God even in death. One of my favorite writers is Andy Wilson, and he speaks of this in one of his books when he writes, We have been born into a grand story, a narrative written by God. And we have been given the freedom to live for God until the last page of the final chapter. There was a time when men and women understood death more fully, when mortality was never ignored. Men and women executed their endings much better then. Some even planned it. Letters from the grave, long-winded last words like characters from Dickens. Those men good and bad, heroes and villains, knew their final scenes would come. And they knew, though, that they really were just scenes. They, like Solomon, knew that we are but a vapor, that we are here for but a little while. We must exit the stage, down through the traps, and let others traipse and sing, love and lose, fight and struggle above us. But God is also there, always there, shaping the story off the stage and on the stage, closing a chapter as a turtle bounces, smiling as he does. To his eyes, you never left the stage. You did not choose to exist. It is a chapter that is ending, an act, not the play itself. In these times, Look to him. Walk to him. The cocoon is a death, but not the final death. The coffin can be a tragedy, but not for long. I will die. And when I do, whether it be in my bed as age creeps over me, or struck by lightning or a meteor or a UPS truck, when my body and soul find their divorce, his hand will be the one that cuts the thread and shows me the path he blazed through tragedy and his finger will point me to the parade. In these strange and trying days of chaos, 
God is at work, accomplishing his eternal plans. And may we number our days and seek God's wisdom and trust his ways so we might live every day for eternity. Amen? Amen. So rather than a, a prayer, we'll have a testimony. Would you like to come up, Rodney? This is a man who uh, will tell you a story. He's a testimony of what it means now to live every day for eternity. Good morning. I'd like to thank Pastor Leland for an opportunity to come up here and, and share with you this morning. Um, my story started, I guess, uh, two summers ago. I, uh, I found myself in a place that was just, just terrible, terrible place. And, uh, you know, you hear about people being in places like that and, and they can't bear life anymore. And they're done here. And uh, that's where I was two summers ago. Finished. Um, I just didn't want to be here anymore. I lost all will to live. I weighed 185 pounds. And in a, you know, just a matter of weeks, I was 147 pounds. And I was doing everything I had done prior. I was eating, exercising. I just... I was finished. I didn't want to live anymore. And I've heard, you know, people dying from broken hearts. Never understood that, but I I sure do now. Broken hearts, crushed souls. And uh, I started some treatment with some different medications and and uh, had arranged for counseling. And I'd been to the A program years ago, and I just knew counseling and medications weren't going to work for me. Um, I did have the good fortune many, many years ago of having an encounter with Jesus Christ. And I was baptized in this very church in my early 20s. And uh, I fell back on that. And... Uh, I got down on my knees and I started praying to Christ. You know, I got down on my knees and I really gave it up. Because I had nothing left. I gave it up to Christ. And, uh, and that's what I did. I just kept praying and praying and praying. And uh, I don't know when, but I just knew things were going to be fine because after I started prayer and really giving my life to Christ, things started to change. And the biggest change for me was I wanted to live again. You know, I really wanted to live again. And I just knew in my heart that things were going to be all right. My life was still destroyed, but I knew I was going to be okay. And I just kept praying. I never quit praying. I, uh, I'll always appreciate the accommodation I had, but it wasn't the best place to be. For somebody that was in my state and somebody that had started praying and, and had really accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And uh, God took me and put me in another place. A, a friend of mine had a house sitting empty and he, he just let me stay there. And it's, it's in paradise. And he put me there. And I moved into that house. There was a Bible there. Somebody had left behind. And I started reading the Bible. You know, I added uh, reading the Bible to my prayers, and that's that was my life. And that's what I did. There was nothing else left. And uh, that went on for months. And then uh, the same good friend that allowed me to stay in his house, I went over to Texade Island to, to help him renovate a house over there. And uh, while we were over there working, uh, I suffered a really, really bad heart attack. Um, I'd eaten some Thai food for lunch earlier, and I just thought that that was my old heartburn kicking in. And uh, I let it go on for for five hours before I got to uh, the hospital in, in Powell River. 
And uh, fortunately for me, there was a heart specialist there. And uh, they got me stabilized. And they were going to fly me out first thing in the morning to Vancouver. Uh, they didn't want to fly me that night because the weather was so bad. It was a terrible, stormy night. And, uh, they had me stabilized. And uh, and I know, I, uh, you know, through this, the whole thing, I, I can always ask myself after why I was never afraid. But uh, I did pray. I did say a prayer that I wanted to come home. And I had to come home to my family. I bring God back to my family because there was no God in my family. My family was crushed. My wife. And I just prayed that I had to come home. And uh, it was about 1.30 in the morning. And uh, I can remember this little nurse standing beside my bed. And, and uh, I died. And uh, I can remember the whole thing. You know, I always thought that when you're dead, that's it, you're done. <laughs> but uh, not the case. Um, I just laid on that, laid on that bed in ICU, and just it was like I was looking through a viewfinder. It's the best way I could describe it. You know, the whole room, the ICU just went black and white, like an old movie. And I can remember saying to that little nurse that was standing beside my bed, I said, "Well, I guess this this can't be a good thing." And the actual dying, even that was wonderful. The whole thing is just, was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I can't, I wish I could explain how wonderful it was, but I can't. I don't have the words for it. But anyhow, it just went black and white. And I can remember laying on that bed and then it just closed off. That ICU just started shutting off. And, as soon, and it just closed. And as soon as that closed out, it opened again. I likened it to a, the shutter on a camera. And as soon as it opened, the light came. And uh, I can remember, it's just crystal clear. Like in my mind, I can remember laying there just thinking about how wonderful that light was. And it was beautiful. Brilliant, white light. And it, it was alive. It wasn't like you flicked on a light switch. That light moved. It had a life of its own. It was so graceful, the way that light moved. My best explanation would be, I don't know if you're familiar with a lava lamp, the way the oil will move in a lava lamp, that's how that light was. It was so graceful and beautiful. Um, and as soon as it touched me, as soon as that light touched me, I can't, just overwhelmed. The feeling of just joy and, and love and peace was just incredible. The whole thing, like I said, was just it's beyond description. You can't describe it. I've never had that down here. Never. And that light just kept wrapping around me. And I, I can remember laying there in that bed as that light got up higher around me and sort of wrapping around my shoulders. I can remember turning my head to try and watch this light. And it just completely enveloped me. And I can remember laying there just thinking how wonderful it was. It was just so beautiful. And I don't know how long I laid there in that light. The next thing I remember was shadows in that beautiful light, shadows. And uh, that light just opened up and just as quickly as it was when I died, I was just, poosh, I was right back in that ICU. And that little nurse was frantic, you know. She was uh, asking me if I had family. Do you have any family close by? Do you have any family we can call? And I said, no, there's no family. And uh, I often thought, at that point, I should have been at least been a little apprehensive and anxious, you know. But there was none of that. I guess I just knew in my heart I was going home. And uh, 
they brought the, the air ambulance in. They did bring it in, and they flew me out right away. I think it was about 2.30 in the morning to Vancouver. And, and uh, they got me fixed up, and uh, here I am. But uh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if I wouldn't have been right with Christ, I wouldn't be here today. I'd, I'd be in hell. I know that for a fact. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that if you believe in Jesus Christ and He's your Lord and Savior, you don't die. You live forever. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think maybe I'm being selfish because I really would like to be back there. I really would. But the only reason I'm here is by His grace. And when I go there, it'll be beyond His call, not mine. And uh, what life is like now, it's incredible. It's incredible. And all I got to do is believe and, and trust God and, and stay in the Word. And don't take my don't take my will back. I don't want it back. Ever. And life today is just it's wonderful. And uh, I often wondered why it was frustrating for me. I couldn't find words to describe to people how beautiful it is. And I've since learned that things of heaven are so far above things of earth there's no description for it. And that's so true. I wish I could. I wish I could just touch somebody, touch people, and you could feel. You could feel what it was like. It's so wonderful. And all them promises in the Bible, every promise is going to be there. All of it. And, you know, life today is for Christ, plain and simple. And I'm so overwhelmed by, by my experience. I don't, I don't want my will back. I'm just going to run with Christ and, and, uh, and try and be as obedient as I can. And I'm just so grateful today to be back in church. You know, I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody, you know, 40 years between church visits don't, don't pan out, so... You know, if you're fortunate enough to be a Christian and have a church to go to, go. Don't just go on Sundays, be a part of the church. That's what I want to try and do. Um, church is Christ, and uh, I belong to Christ now. So I'll be going to church. I'm going to be a part of church, and, uh, and I'm just going to embrace every every day that I have here now and try and live it for Christ. This is nothing else I'd rather do. I spent 63 years doing my own selfish things and living my own selfish life. And I wouldn't trade 63 years for one year with Christ. My last year I wouldn't trade. And uh, I just look forward to church and, and fellowship, meeting other Christians, and, and just growing in that love of Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'd like to thank you for an opportunity to share. God bless you all. Amen. It's a good thing to... Uh have uh, the Lord's Supper right now, too.
We at Aerosmith Baptist Church believe that the Lord's Supper proclaims the reality of Jesus' death on a cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins so we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to God, so we might be given a new life here and then a new eternal life after we go home. God's Word tells us that we are to do this as a remembrance of Jesus' death for our sins. Jesus instituted this with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. When we break the bread, we remember how Jesus' body was broken for our sins. When we take of the cup, we remember that he shed his blood for the sake of forgiveness of sins. The Bible also tells us that before we do this, we should take some time to quiet our heart before God. And uh, the Bible says if anyone eats or drinks without discerning the body of Christ, put judgment on themselves. So we need to cast those things to our Lord before we take it. So let's take some time, a few moments, and then we'll come back together. In God's word, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from you, excuse me, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we take this bread, we remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our souls, you nourish our hearts, you, you give us the power and strength to believe in you and to follow you. And as we break the bread, we remember your body was broken for our sins. And as we eat the bread, we are reminded of the provision of grace for our forgiveness, that is. We thank you with all our hearts for the great price you paid when you were crucified on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Please please pass the bread and the cup. remembering the broken body of our Lord Jesus that was broken for our sins. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Join me in praying. Lord Jesus, as we drink this cup, we remember that you are the giver of life 
and you are the one who satisfies the thirst we have for you. As we pour out of this cup, as we take this cup, we, we see your sacrifice poured out for us. We embrace the depth of your goodness and the death that you suffered for us, and we, we praise you that as the stone was rolled away to unleash the risen Lord, your light now shines in our hearts, destroying the darkness, releasing the blessings of the kingdom of God, living every day for eternity for you. Amen. Remembering the shed blood of our Lord Jesus that was shed for our sins. Do you join me in prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.